Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst with 48 days until the election to stop fascism. I am coming to you today from Amarillo, Texas. We are smack dab in the center of the panhandle, home to the Quarter Horse Hall of Fame and to the Cadillac Ranch, one of the great monuments to disposable capitalism. It's a ranch of trashed Cadillacs sprouting out of the ground covered in graffiti. As Paul Robeson used to sing, that's America to me. You won't want to miss it. But this is, this is no trip and in, in no trip uh, travel log. It is a wake up call to progressives everywhere. Whether you are a Texas populist like the great Jim Hightower or a Queens Bronx socialist like AOC, do not let your filter bubbles fool you. Republicans took 68% of the vote here in Potter County in 2016. If you want to turn Texas blue or Georgia or Pennsylvania or Michigan or even Florida, there are Potter counties everywhere. Job number one is to get Donald Trump's fascism out of office and his sick mindset out of Washington. Job number two is to help the Biden-Harris team and the entire Democratic coalition grasp the eternal truths of the great Jim Hightower. There are only two things in the middle of the road yellow lines and dead armadillos. That was one of uh, Jim Hightower's most favorite quotes. And I think I saw a few dead armadillos on the way in. There is no Green New Deal in the middle of the road. There is no Medicare for all in the middle of the road. The future is progressive if we build it because they are going to try to stop us. In other words, our views won't just win. We have to work to win. We have to strategize to win. We have to get outside of our bubbles to win. And I was so grateful to hear from our friend, Napoleon de Legend, last night. He reminded me how important it is to keep telling each other these truths. So thanks for the encouragement, Napoleon. And we're hoping to have you back on soon when we're situated in studio. But right now, one of our biggest tasks is holding the Biden campaign to account to make sure that they are doing their work, that they're listening, that they're on the road, that they're campaigning. This road trip will help explain what I mean. The trope of 2016 is that Hillary lost because she took the Rust Belt for granted. That's why we now have Scranton boy Joe Biden. He supposedly connects to working folk in the, in the Rust Belt. And I really hope so because as I drove across Pennsylvania earlier this week, I saw acres of Trump signs, homemade Trump signs, and maybe one or two Biden signs. I met Trump supporters everywhere, and those are just the ones who make it very obvious. It is only a snapshot, I know, but I'm, I'm just saying we can't take these things for granted. Biden could win by recapturing Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Or, since I'm down in the Sun Belt now, he can win with Florida, Arizona, and Colorado. The rap on Hillary was she got so focused on the Sun Belt that she forgot about the Rust Belt, literally chose not to put offices on the ground. And maybe that's what happened. Maybe she just took them for granted. Or maybe her political industrial consultant complex like spending money on TV ads in big states down here more than they liked investing in field operations up north. Just so you know, the consultants get a cut of every single ad placement they get on TV. The more expensive the market, the more expensive the ad, the more money that they make. That's how they get rich. That's how they get their fifth homes. On field operations, they make more or less bupkis. This election is too important to leave decisions to the profit margins of jaded, technocratic campaign consultants. Right now, it is hard for the rest of us to know what the Biden campaign is doing. But whatever they're doing, and wherever they're going to do, now is the time to do it. The election is not some future event. Voting is underway now, 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 now. 
The polls close in 48 days. Listen to me, I will say it again. The polls close in 48 days. Now is the time to call voters, to knock on doors where you can, socially distance, to text, to email, and yes, to advertise even, to fire up those voters. I've read several stories that say Michael Bloomberg pledged to give $100 million against Trump in Florida so that Biden can pour money into other states. But that misses the point. First, of course, who knows if Magic Mike will really spend that money. Let's just say his track record is, leaves a little doubt in my mind. But more important, what is Joe Biden's strategy for winning this election? Does the road run through the, the Rust Belt or the Sun Belt? These are different ideas, calling for completely different tactics. I was horrified to hear the other day that Biden isn't doing well among Puerto Ricans in, in and around Orlando, Florida. There aren't many groups of Americans that have been more screwed over by Donald Trump than Puerto Rico. Remember Hurricane Maria and those rolls of toilet paper that Donald Trump tossed out to displaced folks trying to clean up? And his disaster capitalist friends who swooped in to profit off the island suffering? My God, come on, Joe. You just have to mention Puerto Rico. You should be able to carry 100% of Puerto Ricans who fled the hurricane and the aftermath of disaster capitalism and, and Trump's incompetence. And fun fact, Puerto Rico has the highest voter turnout in the country and their vote doesn't even count in the presidential election. Don't you think that they're ready and willing to vote now that it counts? What Trump did to Puerto Rico in the hurricane was a preview of what he is going to do and what he is doing to America, the rest of America, in the pandemic. The whole thing infuriates me. But back to today's point, Biden can win Florida, and he can win Arizona, and he can try to win Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. These are big choices. They drive lots of other decisions. But here is what we must not have. A post-mortem on why the Democrats lost 2020, which finds the Biden team focused in the wrong places on the advice of consultants who made their money by spending money in, in those places instead of more winnable places. That is what stands in the way of fascism right now. Remember the millions of dollars Hillary spent in Texas in the weeks before the election? I'd love to see us carry Texas where I am right now. Texas Democrats are progressive people, but that money four years ago should have gone into field operations in Wisconsin. We cannot afford that kind of mistake again. Fascism wins when good people spend money in the wrong places. Okay, enough of that for today. These are some really interesting stories that are in my newsfeed right now. Yesterday, we received the news that the city of Louisville reached a $12 million settlement with the family of Breonna Taylor. About time, eh? Taylor was murdered by Louisville police, helping to spur this summer's national uprisings. This settlement is a step away from the city's outright refusal to acknowledge the murder. But is the settlement justice? Consider this. It provides for new police reforms, including a program incentivizing officers to live in lower-income neighborhoods of the city, as well as a new command structure for officers carrying out warrants to streamline the process. But there is still... No acknowledgement that Breonna Taylor was killed by the militarized officers of a police state that was built off of white supremacy. This is white supremacy, might I remind you, that is actually being investigated right now by the FBI, organized in police departments across the country. 
Moving armed police officers into low-income neighborhoods or creating clear pathways for violent police interactions to take place isn't enough to change that. And unlike the protesters, those in charge of the Louisville police budget aren't asking themselves why funding goes to arming police officers who are terrorizing some communities when that funding could go to housing, mental health services, health care, and other social services for Louisville residents. In other words, Brianna Taylor and the other victims of the police violence still deserve justice, and we need to keep demanding it. A Wall Street Journal article found that underinsured or uninsured COVID-19 patients continue to face serious financial barriers in healing from the virus. Are we shocked? Many on Medicare without supplemental coverage find themselves without access to the care they need. Others are hit with the, quote, austerity by red tape, forced to jump through hoops in paperwork as, the battle, as, the battle, uh, as they battle the illness. Even patients with insurance have been wrongly billed directly by their hospitals, and those relying on government funding for care have been told too late that this care doesn't cover an important treatment or procedure. Of course, with high levels of unemployment caused by the economic crisis, many people find themselves without insurance from their jobs, so that many Americans are un, un, uniquely at risk to suffer both financially and in terms of health from the devastation of the virus. But Joe Biden and other establishment Democrats still ignore the imperative of Medicare for all. Just one of the many reminders that they're not always on our side and that we need a real opposition party in this country. We have an amazing show today. We have, our panel is Nabila Islam. She is a work reoccurring guest. She is the founder of the Progressive List and she's the national organizing director of Matriarch. Uh, she was a candidate in Georgia, one of those important states that we may or may not be investing in. Uh, she ran for Congress just a few months ago, came very close. And then we have George, Jordan Zakarian in the panel. He runs Progressives Everywhere newsletter. He's a reporter and editor with The Observer. But first up, we have Vincent Bevins. He is the author of The Jakarta Method. We're going to be talking about his book and the importance of, of, of why pretty much every progressive in this country needs to read this book and learn about the tactics that have been used for generations against those who challenge capitalism. Uh, these are tactics that have been used by the state to fight off what they consider communists, uh, but what many think are just, you know, in many cases, unions and organized labor and organized working people on the ground. Uh, it'll be a really interesting conversation. So stay tuned, stick around. Uh, we'll be back right after this break with Vincent Bevins. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. It is always so much fun to do a show from the road. <laughs> Let's see what can come up uh, tomorrow when we're in, <laughs> when we are in uh, Albuquerque and Santa Fe. I am so excited about our next guest. I have been listening to his interviews, reading his interviews um, on his book. I think it's it required a tremendous amount of research. Um, just a, a, you know, really impressive work. Uh, Vincent Bevins is an author. He's a journalist. He's the author of the new book, The Jakarta Method. Uh, he has covered Southeast Asia for the Washington Post, Brazil for the LA Times. And and uh, London for the Financial Times. His work as a journalist has been recognized by the Los Angeles Press Club, the European Union's Lorenzo Natali Media Prize, and the Overseas Press Club. Uh, this is a book about Washington's anti-communist crusade. Um, 
and mass murder, really. Uh, so Vincent, thank you so much for joining us. We are, as you know, on the road and you are not in the US right now. Where are you just to, to start off the show? Yeah, hello. Yeah, um, I'm in London. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. I was in Sao Paulo for most of this year, kind of accidentally stuck there because of the coronavirus and now in London, which is like where I live as much as anywhere else at the moment. So you're, this this book is it required a tremendous amount of research. You, uh, you ended up working um, in Indonesia, but you had previously worked in Brazil. And through your work in Indonesia, you, you uncovered these stories, um, personal stories, and just a, a history that had been kind of left out of uh, you know, American history, I guess you could say, from, from the mainland. Um, but it, it intersected with your work in Brazil. Can you, can you talk about what led you to uncover this mass murder, essentially? Yeah, so absolutely. So I was in uh, Brazil for six years uh, as correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, um, reporting on sort of the collapse of the Workers' Party um, social democratic project that was started by Lula and then uh, under Dilma fell apart very um, catastrophically. And then I moved, went to Southeast Asia to cover that whole region for the Washington Post. And I was based in Jakarta, um, looking most closely at Indonesia. And I found that sort of every story that I was doing about Indonesia or about Southeast Asia in general, right below the surface was this um, very violently and purposely repressed story of the intentional mass murder of approximately one million uh, innocent civilians um, with the active support of the United States. And then- In terms of the population, I mean, one million is jarring, uh, but how large is the population of Indonesia, at least at that time? It is, uh, at the time it was about uh, a little bit more than a million people. So now it's the fourth largest uh, country in the world by population. Uh, at the time it was still very big, but you know, in places like Bali, which was the worst hit, at least 5% of the population was killed. Um, those, the remains of those people that were killed are often still scattered across the island underneath tourist hotels that were explicitly set up as a result of the um, right-wing transfer of power that took place. So to get back to your question about the connection to Latin America, I found that there were real um, intersections with the stories of coups in South America that I think English speakers probably know a little bit better um, in Chile and in Brazil and in Argentina. Um, and one um, sort of unexplored corner of this history that I wanted to look at sort of to you to like bring the whole book together is that this mass murder of the Indonesian Communist Party in 1965, which I argue was maybe the most important victory of the Cold War for the side that ultimately won. Um, it was seen as such an obvious victory for Washington and for Washington's allies around the world that people took inspiration from it. Um, so in, in Brazil and in Chile, you had the use of the word Jakarta to signify mass murder. So either um, Jakarta is coming was uh, spray painted on the walls of leftists to indicate we're going to do to you what they did in Indonesia, we're going to kill you, or Brazil had Operation Jakarta. In Central America, we had some indication there were conversations about deploying the Jakarta method also, um, when ultimately it was hundreds of thousands of Latin Americans that were killed by far-right U.S.-backed regimes using the threat of, of communism as justification. This is in 1964, um, post-McCarthy era. Yeah, uh, where was this coming from? If it was coming from, you know, much of the strategy was coming from Washington. Yeah, absolutely. So McCarthyism 
um, starting right after the end of World War II, and, but then going into the 50s and longer, really wiped out anybody in the entire United States government that was not committed to fanatical anti-communism. Um, but for then, for the rest of the century, the um, confronting communism around the world was a bipartisan consensus. Um, it was considered by everybody in the U.S. foreign policy, policy establishment that communism needed to be fight, whatever that meant, whatever, uh, however little connection there was to the Soviet Union. In the case of Indonesia, we were talking about an unarmed moderate communist party, which sought to work with capitalist elements and then only much later um, pursue a peaceful transition to socialism. They were winning elections um, left and right. But to where did this come from? This was the result of 10 years of CIA-backed or U.S. foreign policy officials attempting to crush the Indonesian left. So, um, it, it might be a bit shocking to, to find, to hear that it ended up in mass murder, but it was not the first thing they tried, right? So the CIA in 1955 first tried to funnel money into other parties that might sort of stop the rise of the very popular and democratic, um, uh, the democratically active Communist Party. And then in 1958, the CIA actually helped to bomb the country, dropping um, explosives all over Indonesia in the active attempt to break it up at that point. They lost. They were exposed. An American pilot um, crash landed into an island and they shifted tactics. And it was only through years of active collaboration between the U.S. military and the Indonesian military that this kind of a solution, this kind of a method could emerge. And in 1965, we still don't know because the CIA has not declassified its activities in the early 60s, if the actual mass murder was something that emerged spontaneously after a clash um, was created uh, um, intentionally, or if the mass murder was planned, or to what extent the actual mass murder um, had the United States in its sort of conception. But we absolutely know that once it started, as soon as the United States in the, in the late um, months of 1965 recognized that there was an opportunity to crush the, the left, it was an enthusiastic supporter of the, of the, the mass murder. Um, it offered material and, uh, and sort of very important international support, encouraged the murders, made it very clear to the Indonesian military that in order to get what they wanted, they had to crush the left. And everybody knew at the time that this meant to, to kill more leftists. Um, and it's only um, as a result of decades and decades of careful work by scholars that um, you know spent a lot more time in this than I did, that we were able to see declassified files indicating um, just how complicit or how active uh, the United States uh, was in participation in this murder. And what I did is, as you said, is I, I spent some time popping around 12 different countries and doing interviews with survivors, people that um, could still remember what happened and talk about their experiences and so, to, so that I could, as a journalist, sort of put this all into a single book that might make sense to a, a lay uh, regular reader. But um, it, it, this, this, this history was hidden for a very long time and on purpose. When you say that you saw some declassified files, where, where did they come from? So the, the State Department has declassified uh, a huge amount of files. Bradley Simpson, historian uh, that works in, around D.C., uh, has been sort of the most important academic in, in doing this work. Uh, and then on the Indonesian side, there's activists that for decades and decades have been fighting for their right to speak out about what has happened. But it is still absolutely not safe to speak out about what happened. If those people who were victimized in 1965, who had their family members killed, had friends killed, are still often suffering as a result and to tell the story truthfully is illegal in Indonesia. So, um, it, like, as I because said- Because it's, it's, it's essentially an oppressive capitalist dictatorship. Um. Yeah, no, they, they passed a law in 1966 banning any kind of apology for communism and telling the, the truth can be portrayed as that if they want to.
so you have you have literally millions of families who have not received acknowledgement or justice or are willing to talk about it to mourn the loss of their family members exactly. and then you have a western media which didn't cover it uh has the un of, there was a small amount of very enthusiastic celebration in in outlets like the new york times and time magazine but then it b very quickly dropped off uh the map indonesia was was um, people stopped talking about Indonesia very quickly as Vietnam became a more important thing in the United States, even though Indonesia, as I said, was a much more important victory for the U.S. foreign policy establishment than, than Vietnam. Everybody always recognized that, that Vietnam was, was very little compared to Indonesia. But yeah, there was celebration and then silence for a very long time, a part of um, uh, sort of our mainstream uh, corporate press. So when you talk about the actual methods, I mean, can we, can we describe some of these methods that, are be, that have been duplicated and... And what sticks around? I mean, it, it's it's hard to imagine something so vast happening today, but you know, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is. I mean, as you as you point out, it's kind of chilling. But everybody that I spoke to that lived through something like this, whether it was Indonesia or Chile or Brazil, they all told me in the years before they thought, "Oh, we we know that these kinds of things don't happen anymore." So in 1962 in Brazil, Brazilians said, "Oh, you know that's stuff from the past. They don't do that anymore." Same in Chile, same in Indonesia. So the method um, that is um, most sort of disturbingly replicated is that of disappearances. So those that know a little bit of Latin American history might know about the desaparecidos in Argentina or Brazil or Central America. Um, in Indonesia, 1965. As I said, this was an unarmed, moderate communist party. So a lot of the people that were taken in and then ultimately killed had no idea that any of this could have happened to them. So they went in voluntarily and then in the middle of the night or while nobody was looking, they were taken away and killed and thrown into a river or, or disposed Wait, of. When you say the, went in voluntarily, went in where? To police stations or to 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 be, they were they were arrested or they they um, reported themselves to police or the military for believing that it would be just questioning or a couple of days of imprisonment while they cleared all this up because they knew they hadn't done anything wrong. But then the disappearance um, functions, as a lot of people know, in that after they're dead, nobody is told that they're dead, which is an ex incredibly effective way for terrorizing family members and uh, friends that might otherwise rebel or make a big uh, make a lot of noise because they always it's the, it's the natural human instinct to think well maybe they're still alive and if I do something maybe that will be the thing that costs them their lives so so uh, other historians that have uh, worked on this believe that probably 1965 was the first time that mass disappearances was used in Asia and then in 1966 we see the first evidence of mass disappearances um, being employed in Latin America um, perhaps a coincidence perhaps a very suggestive coincidence but there were U.S. officials in the CIA and other agencies that moved from Southeast Asia to Central America in exactly that year so you see People on the right realizing, oh, this worked. We can do it. Not only will it work, but what, the United States will help us and then play defense for us on the international stage, which is, which is exactly what happened. And on the other side of the coin, in 1965, left-wing movements who were paying very close attention to the largest communist party outside of the Soviet Union in China, the largest unarmed socialist party in history, they came to the conclusion that, oh, there's no peaceful road to socialism. If you try to play by the rules, they're going to kill you. And in many different ways, left-wing movements um, radicalized um, as a result of this. So as, as, as you said, we kind of forgot about this for a, a very long time. But at the time, it had huge effects on both right-wing tactics, which were ultimately successful in constructing, I think, the world that both of you 
both you and I live in today, and in making the left take a more radical turn, believing that they must, if they wanted to survive. They must arm, they must organize, they must actually exactly. fight back. Yes. Um, yeah. Echoing moments right now. Um, so what kind of tactics that you read about exist today? Uh, you know, obviously you look at a place like Venezuela, there are some hot spots where people are still being abducted and there's still actual, there, there are massacres that still exist on this planet. Um, but let's let's talk about the Western world. What type of tactics are used to pressure the left, to pressure uh, the anti-capitalist movements that are popping up all over the world right now? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think that um, one thing that I try to make clear in this book is that while it's people have a very easy time talking about communist things and the international communist conspiracy, things that all the communists did, um, it's often quite it's often forgotten quite often that the right. Um, was really an international movement that worked across borders and that learned from victories here, failures there. And over those decades in which they ultimately racked up a lot more victories than the left did, they, um, they also created this sort of toolbox, this list of things that worked. They learned what worked, they learned what worked here, they built on that, they improved on that. And while the Soviet Union went away at the end of the 1980s, the United States and that toolbox did not. Right. So the all the agencies that were responsible for doing all of this <laughs> exist in more or less the same form that they did uh, uh, in 1988. And so my book focuses on the sort of most horrible and, and, and perhaps eye catching of the tactics that was employed against the left in the 20th century, which is mass murder. But there was a number of others. Right. As I said, there was just simply funding, funneling money to people that oppose them. This is what happened in Indonesia. They tried to funnel money into a right wing Muslim party. There is economic terror, which we saw employed against uh, 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 President Jango in Brazil right before his coup, you just dry up international capital markets and then you make it very difficult for a regime to su survive. This is something that, of course, is used now, um, uh, I think, overtly and covertly. So Iran is a very good example of, 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 of uh, the use of sanctions. And, you know, it's said out loud that it's being done and it's, 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 it's justified. But I think probably we'll find out in five to ten years that it's being done against other regimes that we don't know about um, uh, as well. And then you have... Uh, um, all types of more direct regime change, right? So the actual military coup and invasion. As I said, there is, what I try to lay out is this vast constellation of, of things that, tactics that worked in the 20th century. And I think anybody that reads that will probably come away thinking, okay, there's a lot of things that echo with the 21st century and they should. I mean, the, we still have a world that is led by the United States as the most, um, as by far the most economically and militarily uh, predominant uh, power. You spent, was it three years collecting stories um, yeah. on the ground? Yeah, I did How too. were you able to, I, I mean, you're, you're a Western, you're an American, and this is, this is a colonized land. Um, how were you able to build those connections with folks and, and really get them to reveal stuff that, that could cost them, you know, I don't know if, it, if they break the laws, does it cost them their life? Is it a fine? I'm not sure what the what the punishment is, but it, this is, it takes a lot to, to be able to get on the ground and, and speak with folks, especially if you don't speak the language, or I know many speak English, but. No, I did, I did, I did interviews in Indonesian, Spanish, Portuguese, uh, and then only English uh, uh, in, in rare cases. But no, that's, um, I wanted, I, it, I spent a lot of time making sure that I could get the interviews and I spent a lot of time 
and I worried quite a bit that I would be doing this in a respectful way. So in order to get the, the interviews with Indonesians, what I did is I, I slowly went to all the uh, organizations that deal with survivors, um, still sort of advocate for their, for their goals now. And, and now that the book's over, every once in a while, I try to raise some money for them on Twitter. But um, I introduced to them the project, who I was, and I was very honest with what I wanted to do. And it was only after they all said, yes, this is something we want to exist, that I went to the next step. But even that next step consisted of living near the survivors for weeks and then months, slowly figuring out who actually wanted to talk to me, who didn't. And anybody that didn't, I didn't press it. Um, I figured out who really wanted to tell the whole truth and who did it. And those that were that really understood, okay, I know what this is. I know who Vincent is. Um, as you say, he's an American, but you know, uh, maybe he under, he's, he's sympathetic to the story, or at least he will, he'll, he'll, he'll be fair to me. Only then finally did I do the many, many interviews from which that I, I picked, I, I selected to make the, to make the book. But I mean that if I didn't do that, um, sort of taking the real time to make those connections and make sure that I was doing it right, I probably could have done it in a year instead of three years. There's probably an extra two years of finding the people that could really bring the story together and making sure that I was doing the interviews respectfully. When did the Jakarta method end? When did we stop fully using this method? Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I mean, I, I, I delineate it in a quite narrow way. So I talk about anti-communist mass murder from 1945 to 2000. Um, so um, be, when, the, when the Soviet Union falls and then the last, the last sort of uh, example I use in this map that I draw of all these programs in the end is Colombia, which goes after the end of the uh, official Cold War, same with Guatemala. Um, at that point, there is no longer communism as the justification, or, you know, although we may, we may see it come back. Uh, in the United States and Brazil, it certainly come back with who knows how will um, the U.S. will confront China in the coming years. But historians that study U.S. history from much uh, from um, an even wider perspective than I do link the war on terror in the beginning of the 21st century to the Cold War, and they link the Cold War to a much larger uh, story of U.S. militarism and aggression going back to basically the colonization of North America, right? So Audarn Westad, who's a really good uh, historian, um, whose books I recommend. Um, argues that the, the, this, this method, you know, it, it takes, you know, there's, a, there's certain inflections, the enemy is officially communism from 1945 to 1990. But really, this fits into a larger story of the European colonization of the global south, and the United States of America as a very militaristic white settler colony that ends up taking over for um, Europe in a sort of uh, informal colonial relationship, which, which I still think dominates. But as you say, this you could see something like this come back. Um, I, we certainly saw a lot of Muslim lives uh, discarded or treated as if they were not valued because of some link to uh, uh, some kind of a global uh, international terrorist conspiracy. I think you can draw pretty quick a, a pretty straight line from that. Um, and you could also see with with Bolsonaro or or who knows, you know, I mean, arguably what's happening in Bolivia right now uh, um, could be. Uh, regarded as anti-left terror and on a much smaller scale, but scale, but it could escalate. So I think it ended sort of in the 2000s, but uh, as a larger ingredient in U.S. hegemony, it's still very much with us and could come back in a big way. I mean, just it must have been just today. I was I was listening to a report of a Colombian leftist now apologizing for how they treated. I was kind of jarring actually just to see 
an acknowledgement on on the left side of how they treated um, politicians during the war in, in 2004. I think it was when mm-hmm. um, when it was this this one incident had happened. But I mean, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> It's interesting to see how they want to adapt their strategies and they're trying to learn from the past 20 years, maybe in reference to how the left responds in this moment in Bolivia, in in Brazil. I'm not sure. Um, it's just something to think about, you know, hearing that report. But this is, I mean, this is such an interesting book uh, in terms of like the moment that we're in right now. Um, what, it's hard to predict these kinds of things, um, but what tactics do you think could potentially be used in the future, given the environment, the lessons, the honestly, even social media, uh, with all these tools at our disposal? Uh, what do you think could still be used? Well, if, if you're talking about the United States, I think the most, the thing that echoed most clearly to me in the last six months is the use of the intentional misinformation, which claims that the opponents of the, any given regime or the people on the streets are actually part of some dark international cabal. And once you claim that, that's enough to treat them as less than citizens, if not less than human, right? So that's one of the tactics that, that, that I said is in that big toolkit that works. You know, if you look at the coups that are carried out, Guatemala, uh, Iran 53, Guatemala 54, Brazil 64, uh, Indonesia 65, uh, Chile 73, um, the CIA learned very quickly, and, and you know, this, they weren't the ones who invent this, uh, that you, if you want to crush your enemy, it's very easy that you should use your position of institutional power to spread insane lies about them right before, and then now you have a justification. And then maybe people are battling those lies, but after you've won the, the war, now the, the battle is happening at, at the discursive level. You are, you're already, you've already won, and now people are just challenging whether or not your justification is right, or if, or if um, there's actually deeper truth. And this is a battle we've been fighting in Indonesia for uh, 50 years, and you know those people never got justice, and they certainly didn't get the more just uh, uh, society that they were fighting for in the, in the early 60s. So I think that, um, in the, the era of social media, that kind of disinformation that is often top-down and intentional um, is as dangerous as ever, if not more. And as I said, everyone that I ever spoke to who lost a family member or a friend believed a few years ago that that kind of stuff didn't happen anymore. The people that you spoke with, the victims, I mean, a million people, I, I'm assuming they're not all they weren't all uh, high-level folks. I mean, no, no, how, how, yeah, how low did it go in terms of, of the murders and, and the capturing of folks? So there were so there were three million active members in the Indonesian Communist Party. Twenty to thirty-five percent of the country was somehow affiliated with the Indonesian Communist Party. This was not like a secret group of guerrillas in in the mountains with Che Guevara. This was like if you were a teacher, if you like worked at the post office, if you uh, were a farmer, you were probably somehow affiliated. So depending on where you were, um, any kind of uh, association or accusation of association was enough to get you killed. So of those one million, a lot were actually the Communist Party members, which does not mean they did anything wrong. Uh, that no one <laughs> did anything wrong, except for perhaps a small group of people in Jakarta that got involved in a, uh, a botched uh, uh, coup attempt. Um, um, but then there was also people that were just, I mean, in my book, where, you know, a, a lot of the characters are precisely this, Magdalena, a woman who's still um, sort of relying on charity 
to survive in, in central Indonesia now. She was just a teenager working at a union. She was a, she put t-shirts together. A union membership was enough to, to get her to round it up and, and uh, really undergo things that wouldn't, uh, are really too difficult even to talk about on, I think, a show like this. And I think people in, in, in Central America and South America recognize that pattern. Okay, well, yeah, you, they, they pulled, the, you know, they, they rounded up all the union people, they threw them in jail. They rounded up all the teachers that were even slightly suspected of being uh, uh, left-wing. And in Indonesia, there was a small racial element to it as well. So sometimes if you were Chinese, that was enough to get you hauled in. But often it was just if you had any kind of way that, the people in power in your village wanted to smear you as a leftist. They would just do so, and that would be enough. And because of this, this, this terror that I, that I described that is created by disappearances, nobody wanted to ever admit that that had happened to their family. Uh, people had remained quiet, and um, it was largely successful. Uh, and um, and it, didn't, it didn't matter when you look back at by 66, 67, it didn't matter that almost a third of the country was, was sympathetic to the communist party. Nobody wanted to admit anymore. They had ever had anything to do with it because they saw what could happen. Okay. Just before we wrap up, um, how quickly after this, uh, this genocide essentially did capital start to come in and, and build? I mean, really, really quickly. And it was, all the people you would expect. It was major U.S. corporations, uh, uh, oil companies, you know, all, all the big famous companies. They were pouring in to Jakarta for swanky business conferences in nice hotels as another one million people were still being kept in concentration camps, tortured and starved simply for their political beliefs. So uh, all, all the big names are there. I, I describe it in the book. Um, but, but through doing this, dictator Suharto, um, through crushing the left and taking power and through consolidating a far-right capitalist regime, he immediately was welcomed with open arms into the community of, quote-unquote, the free world, right? He was immediately given carte blanche to do what he wanted in his own country, as long as he had a good relationship with Washington's foreign policy establishment and U.S. business community. So he ended up being one of the most corrupt leaders in history. Uh, he ended up invading East Timor. Uh, killing a, high, a higher population of that country than Pol Pot killed in his own country. Uh, and the United States, as I d d described earlier, played defense for him on the international stage until the very end of the Cold War. Um, and right away, oil companies and U.S. US big business interests were having a great time making deals in, 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 in Jakarta. I think it was, there, was a, there, was a big, there was a big conference in 66, I think, that I, that I described in pretty... Uh, elaborate detail. Six that fast. Yep. Unbelievable. Vincent, um, I wish we could talk for much longer. This is a really fascinating book, fascinating work. Uh, maybe we'll come back for round two. <laughs> Hopefully, it's a great warning for everybody. Um, Vincent Bevins, author of The Jakarta Method. Thanks for your work. It's late over there, so I hope you get some rest, rest in yeah. uh, London. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Up next, uh, we have our fun panel. Uh, we'll have Nabila Islam and Jordan Zakarian. That's up next on the Nomi Keisha. But before you go, make sure to click like and subscribe and get into that chat. Uh, we're watching the chat. I don't know, is Harvey K in the chat? He likes to show up in the chat every day. So hopefully he's, he's causing a fuss in the chat right now. But um, uh, thanks to all of you. And make sure to go to patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Show us some love. That's how we're able to do this show on the road. Up next, we're on with our fun panel.
Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show live from Amarillo, Texas. Uh, yes, deep in the heart of Texas. What other songs was I told to throw out there? Uh, down in the West Texas town of Amarillo, not, not El Paso. I was told to drop all these Texas song references and I don't know. I don't know them. Uh, we are on with our fun panel here. We have Jordan Zakarian, first time on the show. He runs the Progressives Everywhere newsletter. He's a reporter and editor at The Observer. And we have, of course, Nabila Islam, who is the founder of the Progressive List and national organizing director for Matriarch, which is working to elect uh, working class women running for Congress, which she did just a few months ago and got super close, super, super, super close. Uh, thanks, guys, for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we have some crazy news today. Um, I just want to start off and get your reactions about this is uh, this story. I mean, it, because you're you're based in Georgia, Nabila, the story about the ICE detention centers and women that are being held there, uh, you know, unknowingly know what's knowing what's happening with these doctors who are supposed gynecologists who are giving hysterectomies. Like, we just had a conversation about colonial power in Indonesia, and I immediately thought of, of Puerto Rico. I mean, this happened all over the world, but um, in Puerto Rico, they did forced hysterectomies on women, you know, 50 years ago, and these women are still alive. And it is seen as so archaic that we would be doing that, and let alone we're doing it on our own soil against people who may have been living here for a year. It doesn't even matter. It's just barbaric. So Nabila, I mean, you're in Georgia. What, 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 what do you know about this? I mean, it's, it's, it's been shown that constantly that the worst abuses happen to the people with the least amount of rights. And those are our undocumented brothers and sisters being held at these private detention centers, such as the one in Irwin County, uh, uh, Georgia. I was actually at the press release yesterday where the nurse, uh, Don Mooton, spoke out. Um, and it was incre incredibly disturbing to hear uh, the allegations that you she was making the things that she saw, um, you know, folks, these women were not being given COVID tests, even though uh, people were, you know, uh, you know, potentially they thought people could be sick. They were living in unsanitary conditions. Uh, this doctor that she referred to as the uter uterus collector was doing these mass hysterectomies uh, uh, for women and they didn't know why it was happening to them. There wasn't um, actual consent involved. Uh, and look, we wouldn't have known about this if uh, Nurse Wooten didn't speak out. And how, like, this is happening. I'm across the country. Uh, and what really gripped my heart was, you know, she talked about, you know, I'm a nurse, so I have an obligation to look out after people. But she also said, I'm also a mother. I have children. These are women being separated from their family. They have children too. And I'm so glad that she had the courage to speak up. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy to me that there would be a doctor, um, let alone probably happening all across the country, as you mentioned, uh, doctors who are willing to perform these hysterectomies, um, in many cases without people, women knowing what's happening. Um, Jordan, I mean, you, you, you work in the progressive space. What, was there any indication that it could ever get this bad? Did you ever think that we would be going back to a barbaric time where uh, doctors in 2020 would be performing these hysterectomies? And it's a form of eugenics, essentially. You know, a poll came out today, a study that said, you know, 40% of young people in the United States don't really know much about the Holocaust, but I think it was exaggerated. And, you know, that is, it happened a little while ago, but it's kind of happening here, right? This is straight up like Dr. Joseph Mengele type stuff. And you don't want to believe that it can happen here, but we also have concentration camps throughout the country. I mean, there's no other way to, no other, nothing else to call them. I mean, 
and this, there's so many statistics that bear it out. Between 2014 and 2018, 4,500 children complained of you know sexual assault in being held by ICE. You know, between 2010 and 2017, it was 1,200 people like were sexually assaulted, and you know, 180 of them were found to be found to be like ICE employees who did it. And this didn't make national news. All this stuff is hidden. And so the fact that this woman, this nurse, came out and spoke about it. Uh, it was so heroic and it just like the very, very, very tip of the iceberg, uh, which is the stories themselves are just, you know, unconscionable. But to know that they are just a small piece of it is just even worse. And journalists, of course, are being barred from even talking to the victims going into these detention centers. I mean, it is essentially this is uh, I'm not I don't think I'm editorializing. This is fascism. This is how you oppress people in your country, outside of your country. But um there's there are other dynamic dynamics happening right now. Uh, you know, in prisons, of course, uh, there are spiked COVID rates. There are uh, poorer communities that are being affected by COVID because people need to go into work and there aren't proper you know, precautions being put out there. But schools have become the new hotbeds, whether it's universities or now potentially public schools that are opening are becoming hotbeds beds for COVID because uh, public schools are not equipped. Uh, they are not, you know, Cynthia Nixon wrote an article, an op-ed in the New York Times yesterday talking about how in New York City, public schools are not putting in the proper ventilation systems for children. And of course, New York is, is where this virus was able to spread, at least across our country. Well, now, I mean, the alternative is you teach your, your, your kids from home. Um, they do virtual online schooling. But there is another issue that we face, which is we don't have broadband across the country. And in poorer communities, it is more difficult to have proper broadband. Uh, Nabila, Georgia, plenty of rural parts of, of Georgia. How, how is, is this being discussed on the ground? Is anybody in leadership in, in rural Georgia discussing this? I mean, our governor is Brian Kemp, which I'm sure everyone is very familiar with by now. Um, it's it's hard to push our leadership to do anything when they don't want to recognize that there's a problem in the first place. So there, how do you get to a solution? Uh, about 40% of kids in rural areas uh, have a tough time um, getting access to, uh, to having access to, access to the internet. And so um, we have millions of kids. I think it's about 15, 17 million people uh, just this year that don't have access to the internet. So um, there is a homework gap, as, as which they call it, and people are struggling to, uh, you know, finish their classes at home. Uh, I think there were some photos that I saw about a week back about uh, some kids at a Taco Bell trying to finish their homework because they don't have access to the internet and trying to using trying to use their Wi-Fi. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, these kids are going to be set back in a way that. Um, it's going to be really damaging to their education, and we ha we have to figure out a way to how to address it. Like the internet should be a public utility. I think the the UN in 2016 claimed uh, it said that access to the internet was a human right, and so uh, it's sad to see that we can't make that a right in the U.S. Jordan, I mean, it's 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 not just the internet. You have parents who are working, um, especially if they're on the front lines, and they're probably working. You know, if they do have jobs right now, they're working multiple jobs potentially um, in some situations or one job or they're at home trying to manage their children. I mean, they've become teachers. And then there's the access to proper devices. So how much do you think that that, that progressives, I'm not even going to say Democrats, progressives are doing enough to discuss these types of issues? 
Well, you know, I live in New York City, and there are now 100,000 kids who go to the New York City school system, which is over a million kids. They are unhoused. They don't even have places to sit and watch you know, the school if they don't go into the class. And so they don't have access to the internet. They do not have you know, anything, a place to do homework, a place to rest their head. And so that is a huge issue here. We talk about rural America. It's a huge issue here in the city. And I think that you know, we're seeing a big uh, I don't like a political war between progressives and mainstream Democrats, you know, Bill de Blasio ran as a progressive and, you know, he certainly was, I guess, more so than Michael Bloomberg, but that's not hard. Um, but uh, there's so many things that, the, you know, the, the school system was not able to give to kids. I knew so many kids who, uh, teachers, you know, I have a lot of teachers who are friends and they just, you know, were trying to get Chromebooks for the kids. They were trying to do whatever they could to get internet access or find a place they could all pod together. And so, it's really a situation that cuts across Democratic Party, urban, rural. It's uh, a terrible situation for everybody. And you know, going back to the Internet situation, you know, it should be a public utility. I agree. But this is what happens when you allow just a few corporations to build and then own the infrastructure. You know, there's no profit motive, I guess, to you know, build in West Virginia, you know, rural West Virginia. Why would you do that? And unfortunately, because we don't make anything or build anything or have the government be involved in anything anymore, then that's what happens. We then, it's like we constructed this terrible infrastructure and then the roof got blown off and it was entirely exposed there's, there's problems all over i mean that's a great point because coming out of this uh whether you're in a rural district i mean amarillo texas uh right outside you know five minutes away from where i am right now is extremely rural rural or you're in new york city the inequity exists and it's going to be affecting you know, different communities in different ways but do you not see some sort of like populist uh progressive populist and maybe even conservative populist uh, bond happening because people have to respond to their voters. I mean, if, if, if parents are annoyed that they have to teach, they want their kids to go back to school in Texas because they don't have the ability to teach their kids. They Maybe they don't care about COVID, but they care about the fact that they're being pulled from work and that they can't afford the devices. Um, and then you match that with a family in, in Queens who has the same issues. I mean, is, isn't there an opportunity here for bipartisan action I laugh you know, a little bit, action being the, the laughing point. I, I wanted to believe so. I wanted to say that, you know, what, what, what Trump was doing, what Republican lawmakers for so many years have doing, the privatization and just cutting off funds for people would catalyze that, right? Look at Florida. They just pulled out of the uh, unemployment, the extra topper, because their amount of unemployment they get people was so low. And 13,000 Floridians have died. But what we see the disinformation epidemic, uh, people don't seem to believe, even when they are suffering, that they are suffering or that things are being done to hurt them. So I think that is our number one obstacle, because I do think that people generally are motivated by having help, by you know, getting things for themselves, for their families, for their communities. But we now live in a world where if they can't acknowledge that there's a problem, we're not going to see any sort of movement catalyzed. Yeah, I, I agree with Jordan. Uh, you know, perception is reality. So if you don't see it as a problem, then you're probably not going to speak out uh, for solutions. Um, but uh, I'm hoping that we're reaching an apex point, uh, a critical point where people, parents will start to band together, whether you're conservative, Democrat, progressive, whatever, uh, and, and for the sake of their own children, because um, a lot of people across the board are suffering in the, in the same way. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that um, sooner than later, I mean, I think we're behind, but we really need to take collective action. 
Yeah, I would say Arizona was a place where there was one of the big teacher strikes in 2018. And that's a state that's looking to turn blue. And, you know, Doug Ducey has done a pretty terrible job with COVID, so that doesn't help them. But education and the lack of funding has really turned the tide politically there, where people who were, you know, suburban moderate Republicans are now saying, wait, um, you know, we should have schools. You know, we shouldn't be doing this four days a week. We should be able to have education for our kids. And so, you know, in places where the disinformation maybe isn't as high, it makes a big difference. Yeah, no, I agree. I I will also say that these local issues are hitting hard this time around, right? Uh, you know, they're, they're kids, Republican moms that aren't able to get uh, Chromebooks for their kids because their school didn't have funding to buy enough. And so they're running out. Um, I think more than ever, uh, people are really starting to see how their different parties are starting to address these issues. And so I'm hoping that, you know, uh, that is also going to be translated with people voting differently at the ballot box. You know, we saw in Oklahoma, and I agree with you, you know, we saw in Oklahoma, Missouri, they passed Medicaid expansion. In some places, Oklahoma, it was a very tight race, but it happened. And you would not have expected that a bunch of years ago where it was the evil part of Obamacare and they ran against it. And, you know, they didn't, it didn't pass in a ballot initiative a few years ago. And so even if it's not partisan, people are starting to vote for things that are progressive values. You know, whether it was Amendment 4 in Florida in 2018, Hillary Clinton lost that state, but it passed by 66%. Of course, Republicans then undid it, which, uh, you know, to their advantage. But we're seeing at least policy issues. People are moving to the left and are seeing you know, progressive values. That's a great point. I mean, there's I, I as I've been driving across the country, I was in Oklahoma earlier today. Uh, and it is amazing to hear certain messages, whether it's Medicare for all or framed differently. However, the ideas, the progressive ideas, which I just think are populist ideas. I mean, coming back to the point, is there a way to to come together on these issues rather than the party lines or or even the faces? Because sometimes that distracts away from from the issues. Um, they seem to be really clicking uh, locally because because the. the the circumstances are just too dire. Even the idea of using the term Medicaid, I mean, people understand Medicaid, they understand Medicare. And if they realize expanded Medicaid means they have health coverage, then I don't care if it's Republican or Democrat, I don't care if it's AOC pushing it forward or, or not, it, it, it can resonate in, in Oklahoma uh, where healthcare costs are through the roof. So, I mean, it's, it's just really interesting to see how people are processing. Um, I, I really encourage folks to take a road trip whenever you can, but an election season is definitely interesting because I saw an ad yesterday in Oklahoma that I have to share with you right now. It was bonkers. I can't believe it even got cleared. It basically was an ad of like, the communists are coming. And then they had Elizabeth Warren's face and AOC's face and Cori Bush's face and, uh, and Nancy Pelosi's face. Basically every outspoken woman in Congress who's on the democratic side, their face is like, they're coming for you. And then it was like some white dude running for whatever he was running for uh, in Oklahoma. So, you know, again, that's how they're, they're putting fear out there, but they're not talking about the ideas. But when you talk about the ideas and you meet people where they are, I think that's how you, you're able to bridge the gap. Um, before we wrap up, uh, do you guys have anything to plug right now? Jordan. Uh, yeah, I guess I'll plug. I have a newsletter called Progressives Everywhere, and you can get it at progressiveseverywhere.org or progressiveseverywhere.substack.com. I raise money and interview different candidates, down-ballot candidates generally from across the country, a lot of swimming districts, a lot of people running for local races or state legislature, trying to flip legislatures, trying to get past uh, ballot initiatives passed. And so, you know, just talking to people across the country. Awesome. Nabila, I'm a similar work. 
Um, check out the progressive list, uh, progressivelist.org. We're helping to elect uh, progressives down the, uh, up and down the ballot endorsing uh, some few candidates this year and then uh, next year we're really going to get to work and also matriarch i am the national organizing director uh, please uh, check out matriarch.org uh, and uh, please sign up for our newsletters and a contribution if you can love it i echo that <laughs> as a board member of matriarch um thank you guys so much we want to have you back on if, if you're available uh, we're going to be doing these regular panels uh, especially leading up to the election i think that they're really informative uh, before we go special thank you to midi doctors for the super chat donation and harvey k our our famous guy in the super chat mixing it up i'm, I'm curious to see what debates he pushed today and bob the moderator who's doing great work this is the kind of work that happens uh, when you are an independent media operation. You have a community that is there backing you up while you're on air, making sure to take down the, the right wing. Um, I can't say the words because they're going <laughs> to demonetize me, but the right wing going after you online. So thank you to the community. Thank you to all of you and to our guests, Vincent Bevins, Jordan Zakarian, and Nabila Islam. Tomorrow we will be live from Santa Fe, New Mexico in a democratic state where hopefully people wear masks because I feel like I'm I'm playing Frogger, except instead of getting hit by cars, it's like, will I get hit with COVID? I'm walking into a gas station and stay away from the people without masks. So wear your masks, tell your family members, your friends. If you live in a red state, remind people to wear the masks. All right, we'll see you tomorrow.